Welcome to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. We're your hosts, Mike Rapici and Barry Falk. Hi, Michael. How are you today? I'm doing very well, Barry. How are you? I'm doing well because I'm excited to talk with you about a movie that we recently watched called Don't Look Up, directed by Adam McKay, who I believe directed The Big Short. And I'm forgetting the name of his new project on the LA Lakers in the 80s, but he's responsible for that as well. It's a, another one thing we should mention about it in terms of the Hollywood film uh, set uh, or Hollywood context is that he's known for doing funny movies, comedy movies, comic movies. Mm-hmm with a satirical edge, usually there's a political edge. And this is very important. He's Hollywood in the sense that he usually has and big casts, like star, multi-star casts, which of course this film has. He did here, yeah. He did here as well. So, um, but we're gonna talk about it from the perspective of our usual uh, groove thing, media studies. And so in light of that, Michael, I was gonna ask you about like, what were your general impressions of the movie? Man, it was tough for me. Um, yeah, I I can't say that I disliked it at all. I think I liked it. But um, this was not a comfortable movie for me to watch at all. In fact, I, I actually had to break it into pieces. I had to I got through the first half of it um, and then I had to stop and walk away and then come back and, and try again. Uh, how about you? What were what, what, How'd you do with it? Well, you know, we had an identical, um, I, I thought we had a very similar response, maybe for different reasons, but maybe not for different reasons. Um, so in my circle uh, of friends, such as that is, right. you know, in my circle, uh, there was a lot of buzz about this film and there was a lot of love for this film. And I remember watching it either on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, I can't remember which. And um, I should say a lot of the people, I don't, did you have any sense of this, Michael, from going into the film? Um, did you read any of the reviews or did you hear people who say, I like the film because I like the politics of the film? I guess I heard a lot of that, that's why I'm asking. I did not. In fact, um, in this instance, my circle of people, is very different than your circle of people. There was, um, my, my brother's a movie guy and he's very high on this movie, but we didn't actually talk about it. He just said, that's a fantastic movie. Um, yeah, there was, I, I came into this pretty much blind. I mean, I knew okay. it had a big cast, but that was it. Well, I, I came in, I guess, with a little bit of advance warning about the film. And I was told that I would approve of the film's satirical satire on contemporary American politics. Mm -hmm. And therefore I would love the film. I found it a little bit heavy going. And while I understood that it was satire, I found it uncomfortable, more uncomfortable to watch than, than, you know, a barrel of yucks than, than funny. So I actually, and it, it sounded like we were talking about before, I think I bailed. I had these uh, the same experience. I couldn't get through the entire. It's a two and a half hour film, right? Yeah, it's but the length was not what put me off to it. It was, yeah. um, you know, the satire is not hard to find. I think what made me uncomfortable mm-hmm. was how easy it was to connect with in that way. And I just think mm-hmm. it was sort of like, 
I don't know, looking in the mirror and not liking what you see a whole lot. And I had to walk. Well, I, maybe that's, that was behind my experience as well. But just to answer your question, I was, uh, I, I had the same experience. We get to, there is uh, crucial to the plot. There is the first attempt to save the world from the comet that is imminently approaching the world. Uh, and there is uh, the president, um, okays a uh, sort of a rocket launch and there was going to be a counterattack on the comet that's about to destroy the planet and that's about an hour and a half through the film and that's where i stopped i couldn't uh, yeah, same with it me. anymore same with me right when the movie threatened to become armageddon I had yes to right away. i thought oh my gosh i'm gonna watch armageddon again no and so then i bailed and i didn't watch it actually so for what i i waited two months before we started talking about it or how, however many months it's been. I guess okay. two and a half months. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I only waited a day. But uh, that was. But I needed that day. I am um, capable of indefinite deferral when it comes to movies. I'm, I'm a bad movie watcher. But that's, well, another, let me that's a whole you, other podcast. That's a whole wait, other what, podcast. When you came back to it, before we get into uh-huh. it, just briefly, though, when, when, when you did come back to it after a two-month hiatus, um, yeah. I, I will say that my second day of watching was was vastly improved um mm-hmm. but i can't tell whether it's improved because um it was better or different or whether it just took me a little while to say okay this is what i'm watching and and these are the characters that make me uncomfortable but they're the com- they're the characters i know now i mean what what do you did you did you have a better second run i had a much better second run but it's because i liked the end plot which we'll probably talk about a little bit uh, I liked the end scene, the last 10 minutes of the movie in particular. I found it more engrossing. And then I found the last 10 minutes of the movie moving. And so, so I had a vastly different and better experience of the movie second time around. Okay. I, I, I still can't be sure. I, I Again, I think we're in the same place that I was much more comfortable with the second half. I don't know yeah. why yet. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll have a, insight don't you think it, do you, you know, uh, it took me two months and took you a, what a day or a half day. I don't know how, how long it was, but, or a day. Right. But uh, maybe the, maybe the difference, maybe for both of us, it was partly a question of just adjusting to the, it took us a while, maybe, maybe an explanation for both of us is that it took us for whatever reason, it took us a while to get into the world of the movie. It took us a long while to get into the world of the movie. And then when we got into the world of the movie, then we were, if not more comfortable, more, I guess more comfortable is the word. Not necessarily happier, but more comfortable, more. Yeah, maybe better able to process. Better able to process it. That, you know, and I, I, I think that's it. And I, that's you know, so I, I watched this obviously so that we could talk about it. Um, and the thing that I saw throughout this movie, so let, let's, let's talk about the movie as it, as it pertains to critical media studies. Um, this seemed to me, if, if we took, you know, we started the podcast with an episode on Bernard Stiegler's Automatic Society. And um, if you were to turn his theory into a movie, this is what it would be like. This is what it would be. And um so just briefly for listeners who haven't heard the first episode or who um, don't recall, um, Stiegler, Stiegler's book, 
the Automatic Society argues that we and and I'm going to use his book and 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 also Jonathan Crary's take on the book sort of interchangeably. I want to move between the two because that really forms the the lens that I saw this movie through. Jonathan um, Crary's Twenty Four Seven Culture. Yes, yes, book you're referencing right. And so the the and Crary's Twenty Four Seven is really very much a response to Stiegler's Automatic Society. They they are dealing with the exact same um, sort of media phenomenon. And right. so the argument goes that we are Twenty Four Seven plugged in, that our culture is connected uh, and that it is self-perpetuating. And Crary argues that this self-perpetuating connectedness really revolves around uh, 24-7 consumerism, right? And that everything in society is basically aligned and configured to enable you to consume at any point regardless of what you're looking for in the, in the day and the life cycle. Yeah. 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 I it mean, is. it's it, it, Amazon is always on and always ready for you, but it goes beyond something as obviously uh, consumers as, as, as Amazon, just everything encourages us, is, encourages us to want. Um, and as a result of this, there is a, what should we say? A dearth of intelligence is, is a byproduct of this, that we become, uh, the Stiegler's term is functionally stupid. It's Stiegler's term, right? Um, or is that Crary's term? That's Stiegler's term, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so functional stupidity. And basically the gist behind functional stupidity is that we are able to function, we are able to work, but there are no thoughts of substance. There's the, the, we, we, we can only operate within a very narrowly defined space. Um, that we don't really get a chance to develop. Uh, and so when I saw this movie- uh, Can I add something to that just before you go on? Yes, yes. Is that all right? Um, I, I just would say, uh, because I, lo I love your summary, I just wanted to add one element to it because it might be important in, in discussing the movie. Um, part of the reason why, we, I mean, Stiegler's point, his argument- um, he argues that we have become functionally stupid for a very specific reason, that the 24-7 uh, the, the culture is basically power. What enables 24-7 culture is the algorithm. Right. And the algorithm allows us to make decisions instantaneously. And because we're, we're so used to, what do I want? I want this. I want it now. When do I want it delivered? I want it now. Because we are so... I want to listen to Robert Johnson. I want to listen to, uh, um, you know, something that was recorded in 1933 on this particular day. I got to go to Spotify. Just don't say Neil Young. Don't say, huh? don't say, just don't say Neil Young. <laughs> I want to listen to Neil Young. Um, I want to listen to Spotify. I want it now. I need to buy the record. No, I don't need to buy the record. I need to log on. I need to well, find it. So instantaneous. So the instant, so we get we get reprogrammed right because of this instantaneous uh, culture we're prompted constantly to make decisions um, at the moment and to have our needs and desires mostly gratified with a couple of mouse clicks and you know at the, or the time that it takes to click a mouse a couple of times so so well that's so dense dense or hence <laughs> Functional stupidity. Yeah, well, and that, but I think that the the, the key thing here that the movie brings out, uh, specifically through the Isherwell character in Bash, um, the algorithm 
governs everything, but mm-hmm. it also anticipates and really defines our needs. You know, this is this right. is this is not so much <clears throat> the algorithm giving us what we decide we want, is as it is the algorithm deciding what Absolutely we want. Absolutely right. But that's and, making and it's functionally stupid, right? It is, that's but it also does it. it also does something else, which is really really uh, central to this, mm-hmm. is that it will give us what we want, it will show us what we want, and it will point us in that direction. But the algorithm does something else, and that is that it marginalizes uh, or represses things that cannot be co-opted, right? So if so you, you think about like music from the 30s is a fantastic example of this, right? If music from the 30s can be repackaged and resold or remarketed or made cool in some way so that it can be a viable commodity, then the algorithm will take it up. But if something comes up, like if you've got, I, I don't know, um, you know, some, some, some genre of music um, that the algorithm decides cannot be a viable consumerist object. Uh, it will be relegated to the deep dark corners of the internet or of the of the algorithm, uh, and we'll never see it again, right? So the thing that's important here is that the algorithm makes the decisions about what we see and what we don't see and what we chase and what we don't chase. Um, but in doing so, it doesn't give us everything, right? I mean, this is this is curation that is beyond. And I think that's part of the problem with functional stupidity is that we rely on these algorithms to make that really central choice for us. And so I, when I, you know, when I think about, uh, and, and we'll get into, you know, noesis was, um, was Stiegler's way out of this, uh, which we can get into in a second, but that was the thing I saw about this movie is that every single character on here really fell into this model um, in, in ways that are disturbingly clean. Did you see that? I mean, when we, you know, we talk about Stiegler. Do you see this as a, you know, the Stiegler movie? I was as aware of, for one reason or another, I don't think I really connected the film to Stiegler until you started talking about it. What I was mostly conscious of, though, and I guess it should have reminded me of Stiegler, is that the film has a lot of representations of social media, right? It's not mm-hmm. just like television. There's a lot of representations of social media. There's Ariana Grande playing a major pop star. And there, there are all these ways in which social media, in fact, one of my favorite scenes in the film during, during, the, uh, during the, one of the uh, attempts to, I guess the attempts to, I guess the first attempt of the uh, Ron Perlman character to blast the comet out of the sky, uh, I was noticing that the adults were looking at the TV screen, waiting for the rocket to go off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but th- there were all these, you know, everybody who was younger, they weren't looking at the TV screen. They were just sort of like playing with their phones. Sure, and sure. so there's a lot of representation of social media. We see uh, the, uh, what is her name? Kate uh, Biasi. Jennifer uh, Lawrence character. Oh, is it Kate? God, we should know this. I think it's Kate. DiBiase. DiBiase. I'm yeah. sorry. But we see her character. Her her character rises and fall according to the you know Twitter and and TikTok and social media. So I was aware of the social media aspect, but I I didn't really connect it to the algorithm. 
And so I'm very interested in what you're doing, I guess is my. Yeah, well, so, response. you know, I think uh, if, if we look at the, like, so the two characters who were most interesting um, in this for me were Jonah Hill's um, portrayal of Jason Orlean and Kate Blanchett's uh, Brie Evansley. And man, I found, I, I guess, first of all, to be clear, kudos to, Jay, uh, for, to Jonah Hill, because man, his character was about the most obnoxious thing I've ever seen. I mean, that was a, a pretty, a pretty phenomenal job of, of, of being um, annoying. But, you know, if you look at Orlean and Evan Lee, um, they, these two really like total opposite ends of, of the screen, right? I mean, or, Orlean has his position um, as a, you know, obviously if your mom's the president, you're going to find the job. This is nepotism at its finest. So he gets to be chief of staff. Why not? Right. I mean, he was, he, he's, he's absolutely incompetent yet. He's wielding this massive thing. And his, uh, his focus is on what public opinion on, uh, you know, Basically, how, how would you describe what he's focused on? It's a really good question because it's not even, you know, I didn't even get the feeling curiously enough that he was that invested. He was obviously in a troubling relationship with his mother, the president, right? Sure. And they were obviously very, very close. But did you get a sense that he has any interest in politics beyond just keeping his mom on top of the world? No, I mean, it was no, like I mean, the he's most shallow total- motivation. Ever, vacuous. Right? And, and, yeah. And so, you know, if you want to think about functional stupidity, somehow this character, right, with this constitution is able to be chief of staff. Mm -hmm. Sure. Right. And then you look at Blanchett's character who, you know, when, when you first meet her, she's drunk on set, right? She seems and looks absolutely plastic. I mean, there's just nothing to her. Then you come to find out that she's got an Ivy League education. She speaks French. She's got, she's well-versed in art and poetry. I mean, this is a woman of, of substance, we would think, right? And what, what has the, you know, her, her position or her existence in media done to her, right? It hasn't changed her. I mean, this is what's interesting about her character, I think. She's not changed, right? Like in, in, in the one moment she whispers uh, French poetry, into um, you know DiCaprio's ear, right? He's like, "What was that?" They have their uh, you know their little sort of postcoital discussion in the hotel room, and she lays out, "This is my this is my history, my past." It's like, "My God, this is who she is." But it's like being a part of the media machine has made that as unnecessary and as uninteresting as a piece of toast, right? So. She, even though she, she is a woman of substance, it doesn't matter in this environment. In the environment. Right. And it doesn't, and, but the environment is so pervasive that it doesn't matter. The environment is everywhere. Right, right. Right. So at no point does she invest in that. It's like, I did this thing, but whatever. So, yeah. No, so, so those, I mean, like I look at those two characters in addition to being profoundly annoying, um, they were really interesting examples of being functionally stupid while you are, or as a result of being, um, you know, prominent fixtures in the media. Um, other, are there other examples of functional stupidity that we should talk about or? Well, so 
I think that, you know, we, we, we could go through and, and, and pick everybody out. I think that the, what was his name? The general um, was a fantastic example of this um, um, <laughs> charging for snacks. But I, I think that I, I, I chose, I, I look at them prim- primarily just because they're such fixtures, you know mm-hmm. um, the, the interesting question, maybe if we're going to talk about algorithm and functional stupidity is what happens to uh, Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio's characters, because you've got, um, uh, and her name is uh, Kate DiBiase, or DiBiaski. Um, you know, she is very clearly not uh, a victim of functional stupidity. This is this is someone who has um, something to say, obviously something of consequence, right? The world's going to end. Here's how and why it's going to end. Here's when it's going to end. Um, <clears throat> and the world, and they, you know, there's no room for. Her. They just they don't want her, and they don't want her because it upsets the algorithm. You can't sell. Armageddon, I guess you would think that it might be something people be interested in, not. Um, Well, you know, that you raise an interesting question. Why? And let me let me run something by you and see what you think. The you raise an interesting question. Why couldn't you sell Armageddon? And it seems to me the movie is saying the reason you can't sell or market Armageddon is because Armageddon means that you can no longer buy things. Yeah, it doesn't. There's, there's no things. So there's that's no per- why it doesn't process. Why is it? I mean, this might be worth thinking about. Why does the algorithm not? Why can't it process the end of the world? And I think it's not because it's the end of the world. <laughs> it's because uh, the end of the world means a time without buying and selling. And that yeah, seems to be the reason that the, al- the algorithm can no longer perpetuate if everything is no destroyed. Longer, right. That's um, it. And I think that that's an interest, and that maybe you know we need to circle back to that because I think that's an that that is that is a good explanation for how the algorithm misses Armageddon in the first place. But the you know if if we're going to talk about this, the um, on on the other side of the uh, the functional stupidity coin, we've got you know representations of people or representations of functional, thoughtful. Um, people, right? So this is sort of what, what Stiegler calls uh, noesis, right? Uh, thought, uh, intellectual thought. Uh, and we get the representation of that through the uh, DiBiase and Mindy characters. What do you, what, what's your take on them? Well, I think I would make sense of them in the context of the movie and, and you know, using, I think I can use the frame you're outlining about the algorithmic system that perpetuates functional stupidity. I think we can use that to explain the trajectory of the characters, the character, the arc of these two characters. So for Dr. Mindy, um, as you mentioned, I think you mentioned this, that Dr. Mindy, I mean, they're both scientists. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is already, already has a PhD. The other is a PhD aspirant or she, did she, I can't remember if she got her degree. She, she, or, no, no, she is definitely doctor, on the crew. She is doctoral candidate. She's a doctoral candidate. Okay. So we have two people, one person who's a recognized in the field and another person who wants to be recognized in the field. And is on the, is is on the threshold, right. And is on the threshold. So we have two people who sort of represent noesis, as you said, noesis is uh, the Greek word for a kind of higher, not just thinking, but a higher kind of thinking. So they represent that and they represent the authority of science. 
Um, but what happens to them when they, you know, when they go up against the algorithmic system, when they go against social media's algorithms? Well, and that's that's basically kind of the crux of the movie, right? That Dr. Mindy, uh, for whatever reason, maybe because he looks good when you give him, uh, when you groom his beard, I, I guess, well, you know, it's, I don't know if it's necessarily that believable, but in the context of the movie, I guess it makes sense. He is Leonardo DiCaprio after all. Um, Dr. Mindy gets sort of uh, sucked up into the algorithmic machine or accepted in the algorithmic machine. And I guess there are two things to say about that. In one sense, through his affair, you know, his uh, affair with Kate, the Kate Blanchett character, I'm forgetting her name, unfortunately. Kate, uh, uh, oh, uh, Brie Evans. Brie, Brie. How can I forget Brie? As, uh, that's that, that's a perfect first name for the character. But um, Brie introduces Dr. Mindy into the seductive world of media images, and he becomes a media spectacle. And there's, uh, but there's a kind of willfulness, this, right? Like he kind of agrees to turn off his brain and that's manifest, you know, uh, I'm trying to think about this in line with you're saying about Stiegler and Noesis or the lack of thought that characterizes the algorithm, right? That, um, that he kind of willingly tampers down, I and mean, this is my sense of it. One of the differences between Dr. Mindy and Kay is Dr. Mindy, um, gets seduced literally by the media world. Mm -hmm. And then he starts to tamp down his edges. He starts trying to accommodate. He becomes, instead of a forceful, instead of being a forceful spokesperson for scientific, for science, he's willing to moderate his content. He's willing to hold back a little bit. And that well, was he my does, sense of it. He does more than hold back. He goes so far as to endorse Isherwell's that's plan. right. That's and, right. you know, I think one of the interesting things to note in terms of um, just what he's left and what he's accepted, mm -hmm. you know, what he's mm -hmm. left and what he gains. Right. So he leaves the cramped academic office mm -hmm. for New York and fancy hotels. Right. Mm -hmm. He leaves East Lansing, Michigan for New York. Right. Like the right. depictions of these in the right. films are very, very different. I mean, right, like the, you, you get a sense that his new world is so much more glamorous and so and much more so much more in seductive yeah. in every way that, um, you know, it's it, it's you, you understand that this is not just him being privileged. I, 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 I think of the scene in The Matrix, the um, original round of Matrix movies, not the most recent abomination Matrix movie where uh, the guy's eating the steak and he's talking with the agent and he's saying, I don't, I don't care that this is fake. It's delicious. I mean, basically that's what this is, right? Like when you get co-opted from the algorithm, you get to leave the black and white dingy ship and you get to go sit in fancy restaurants and eat expensive steaks and have sex with famous, beautiful people. Otherwise you can just sit in a dingy corner and be gross. And that's basically, um, what um you know dicaprio's character is done yeah and you asked about kate as well and how she fares in this she doesn't fare well in this right social media slams her for various reasons and so she's 
kept out of this world, this beautiful, you know, uh, this illusory world that uh, Dr. Mindy has access to. Well, what's fascinating is not entirely though, right? So she mm -hmm. gets bounced back uh, mm -hmm. to the Midwest and she's now, you know, good. You, you you're a PhD candidate. She's working in a discount liquor shop, right? But she does have a media presence. It's the memes, the memes of her predict persist, right? Yes, indeed. So, but, but what are those memes doing? They're mocking science, right? They're, they're demonizing science. I mean, it's like, God forbid you, you have a brain, God forbid um, you, you can do math or whatever um, your thing is, right? Like that, that gets you on the bottom of a skateboard as a sticker. So yeah, uh, they're, they're two very different. I, I think they're the, they're interesting just in, in terms of how you see how the algorithm handles uh, a threat to itself, uh, how Perfect, the, al yeah. how yeah. the algorithm views the population, right? Like if you could sell smart stuff to the population, you would, but you can't. So that gets marginalized. So, um, you know, I, I think they're really interesting questions, but to go back to the algorithm, I think perhaps one of the most challenging aspects of the film is the bash Isherwell combination here. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, um, you've got that sort of Steve Jobs style presentation where he's talking about his new uh, cell phone operating system that can sense when you're sad, <clears throat> can you know uh, find you the appropriate cat video to make you mm -hmm. happy, can mm -hmm. book you a you know an appointment with a therapist. Um, so this 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 algorithm is obviously very very adept and capable, but it is the same system that plans the mission to save the comet for its financial value and then fails horribly. And I found that to be an interesting problem until I looked at it through Stiegler's lens. You know, how is it that something this sophisticated and advanced and seemingly accurate? I mean, it does, it does foretell how the president will die 2000 years in the future uh, at the jaws of an animal that has not yet been discovered. I mean, so we see that there's, it works, but it misses, it misses Armageddon, you know? And so is, is that just because we can't sell Armageddon? So we're not going to focus there is, is, is this, you know, what, what do you see in that? Uh, maybe a contradict. Maybe I see a contradiction in the film because the film does seem to be saying two things that the algorithm is all powerful and all pervasive and that science can't stand up to the algorithm. Politics can't stand up to the algorithm. Nobody can really stand up to the algorithm. You either get absorbed into the system like Dr. Mindy and spit out or just spit out before you're even chewed like uh, the K character. Um, so there, you know, so that's one message of the film. But on the other hand, you know, I, I don't know if I can explain why the algorithm uh, would prove to make such a, would allow, would enable a literally devastating, a devastating, uh, you know, have a, such a devastating failure. See, I, I was tempted at first to see it as a huge hole, mm -hmm. but it's not because the algorithm doesn't like humanity survives, right? There's that escape ship to go. And Isherwell's on that ship. And 
so I mean, let's let's t- tell you what. Let's let's talk about the end of the film because let's I think- talk about the end of the film because I do think that maybe holds. Uh, but you know, I think the end of the film, um, I I see in one of the sequences in the end of the film, um, kind of contradiction that I was pointing to a contradiction maybe in its presentation of the algorithm, and I think one of the segments in the in the end show this kind of contradiction, but. Go ahead. Let's do it. Let's talk about the end. Well, so I was trying to figure out how how it is that the bash algorithm could miss something so significant. Yes. And I think the problem with that thinking is that from a human perspective, it is significant, right? This is the end of civilization. Sure. But at the same time, this algorithm knows that Meryl Streep is going to get her head chewed off. By some so the algorithm of, is all powerful. It is so the algorithm it, is all powerful. It is because it it, it is somehow okay. able on Earth two thousand years ahead of time mm-hmm. to predict that they're going to be on some alien planet, mm-hmm. and some creature is going to kill her, right? So it's not the end of the world for the algorithm. It's not the end of the world for Bash. In fact, it's fascinating because when they get off the spaceship and they all walk out like they're exiting Noah's Ark, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Isherwell is standing there holding his phone. He's not looking around. Nobody's marveling at this amazing occurrence that we've found a habitable planet with life on it. He's staring at his phone, right? And the phone doesn't care where it is. The algorithm doesn't care where you are. The alg- algorithm simply cares what do you want so I can sell it to you so that I can be further embedded and, 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 and further solidified. So I, I think that if you look at this algorithmically, as we're trying to do um, that comet is a financial opportunity that really amounts to a blip because how much does the, how much does the value of that comet matter if everything's going to be destroyed? Right. So, yeah, we, we try it. If it fails, that's okay. We're still going, right? We're still hopping on the boat and we're sailing away and we're going to go find dinosaurs. So, so how, what is it? We should say uh, that we're doing a lot of spoilers now. We're talking about two segments. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we're, we're doing the two segments. Um, the two segments that run after the credits. I think there's a technical term for this, but there are two sequences uh, that happen after the credits run. Okay. And so you describe one of them and the yeah. other one is Jonah Hill surviving the end of the world. So the end of the world isn't the end of the world. Well, I know, you know what? It's like when the end of the world comes, the cockroaches are supposed to still live. Still live. Right. And I think that essentially this is just calling Jonah Hill a cockroach. Okay. Yeah, I think it is too, but, but what does he do? What he oh, does what, what is he, he tries to. Yeah. He, he, well, go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's just that what he does, his first instinct is to try to get likes and shares, even though there's no planet. He tries to get likes and shares for the fact that he is still alive. Yeah. He records the fact on social media that he's still alive and he wants likes and shares, even though there's no one to share with or to like it. Right. So what do you call that then? Is he just simply like the human manifestation of the algorithm? Is he just, I mean, you know, I had forgotten. I, I think I see, I think you helped me see the thing that ties those two, two sections together and that also sort of connected back to the film. 
the message of the film seems to be the algorithm doesn't need humans. It doesn't really need humans. I had forgotten the scene that you had mentioned that when Dash gets off the, out, off the ship and and he, they're on a new planet, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. A, yeah, yeah. Well, I, is it a new planet or do you, did or they just circle back to Earth? Earth? Yeah, I, it's I, not I clear. It's not clear, but as soon as he gets off the ship, I had forgotten this until you reminded me. He's looking at a phone. Yeah. Right. So it seems like the algorithm and the algorithmic system can literally withstand. It is a cockroach in that sense, in mm -hmm. that it literally will withstand the end of the world. So when you look at it from the point of view of the algorithm, uh, it never needed human participants at a certain, I mean, in a way, isn't the film just talking about the supremacy? And maybe this is one of the reasons we get uncomfortable with it. Um, that isn't it just sort of saying that AI is going to win? And the human element isn't uh, important. I mean, even more than the algorithm, saying the algorithm, saying the algorithm is going to win and prevail. Isn't that another way of saying it's sort of feeding in or substantiating or something, our biggest fear that um, our that we machine. All, we yeah. all have to move to East Lansing to have a shred of humanity and otherwise. Exactly. And that actually explains the end of the film, um, you know, Dr. Mindy's arc the only you know we were we were criticizing that ending wonder whether it would be believable for dr mindy all of a sudden to say i want to get back i want to get back home i don't want to die alone and resist uh, the message that the algorithm had uh delivered him that he's mm -hmm. going to die alone and he resists that message he goes home but maybe he has to do that in order to be human that's the only thing to do in the within the the sphere of the film yeah, no. The only he, thing you could do to be human is you have to go back home. Be, Otherwise, well, you you have to exit the algorithm. You have you to have exit right. this yes, cycle of 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 yeah. you know connectedness. Um, go go to a you know a little dingy. And no offense to anybody in East Lansing either, but you know basically, yeah, you have to you have to exit the bright lights and connectedness of the algorithm, and you have to go to your little analog town and. Right, right. Connect. So, I mean, maybe the film is sort of playing on our fears that our machines are going to outlast us, our machines are smarter than us. The things we were talking about in the E.M. Forster, uh, in relating to the E.M. Forster short story. Yeah, the world ends there too. But it's, and and it's reborn, and it's, and it's re but it's reborn in a happier way in, in that one. Well, let me ask you, the, the um, you know, we, we were talking uh, earlier about this and we, you, you had mentioned that there's two questions that we have to ask anytime we talk about a movie, right? Uh, were you entertained and did it give you any new ideas? So this is, this is the grand <laughs> takeaway, Barry. Were you entertained and did you have any new ideas? Um, I was not entertained, maybe for very subjective reasons, but as, as we were talking about at the beginning of our episode, I was not that entertained at the beginning. I thought the comedy was too broad. And I, for that reason, I didn't find it very funny. Um, but I got engrossed in the characters, uh, in the Dr. Mindy character and in the uh, Kate character and their travails after they get chewed up and spit out by the, or rejected in Kate's case. But then after he leaves, I guess, you know, it's hard. I guess at a certain point, we have to say that Dr. Mindy chose Noesis at the end, right? He has that breakdown on the, on the on the TV, and then he sort of 
speaks the truth and then he aligns himself back with the position right. of science. And right. so he makes a conscious choice even before he goes back home to his wife and family. He's already made a conscious choice to embrace noesis and reject the algorithm system. Um, I got engrossed. So in terms of entertaining, I wasn't entertained at first, but then I got engrossed with the arc of the characters by the end of the film. Did I get new ideas? So I guess that's entertainment, right? Um, did I get new ideas? You know, the film, and again, this is very subjective, but we're talking about movies, right? We can be subjective. The, I don't know if I got new ideas. I'm interested to hear what you say about that because I think mostly I got old ideas, ideas of, you know, critical attitudes towards social media, which I think everybody who uses social, I mean, here's the thing, Michael, doesn't everybody who use social media criticize social media? Is the on film social, really on, on social on, on effing social media? I mean, that's how it works now. So um did I get new ideas? No. I got a criticism of social media that I often get using social media. Mm -hmm. I get that critique. And so I didn't get that too many new ideas. And actually, you alluded to this, and I, I have to say this is kind of my final word. The film was a tremendous downer for me at the end because it made me feel very hopeless about changing yeah. the situation. But what about you? What did you think? What was so your takeaway? I, I was not entertained. I was uncomfortable. Uh, I was the 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 acting was so good. I mean, it was exceptional. These, you know, yeah, it was great acting. That that, that I was really made uncomfortable. I did not enjoy <laughs> it at all. Um, and did you get any new ideas? You know, I don't think so much. Well, I saw Stiegler. Right. And so I, you could argue, yeah, I had, I had a lot of ideas. I saw Stiegler top to bottom through and through. And my response to this was that it looked, the film as a whole just looked profoundly familiar and the portrayals of our media institutions, our political institutions, our social lives resonated with me in a way that really just left me feeling kind of defeated. And I don't feel defeated because the world ended. You know, I was. I, oh, no, you know, that's that's not it. I, I don't think that was my feeling of hopelessness. No, the, prob the problem no. was just that, like, wow, this is not. I guess I left feeling like, wow, this is not wrong. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was th there's the party that's watching the movie and it's like the the comet hits and you see the devastation scene by scene. And you're like, oh, that's a bummer. That that's a bummer. They actually did it. They 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 really killed everybody. That that's that's a bummer. But the bigger bummer for me was, man, this is who we are. And so I I left feeling not, I left feeling hopeless. But I'll say I I, I think it was, it was a good movie. It's just a movie that didn't have good intentions. I think I'll say. Um, I um. Yeah, that no. well, you don't think the director was trying to make you feel, I don't know, dissatisfied with uh, the current state of things? You know, I suspect that that was a part of the game. And I think that this is one of those, um, this is one of those things where 
I think you're going to see what you want to see out of it. I think mm -hmm. that there are people, you know, our, our whole purpose in recording this show is to be studying critical media, right. Mm -hmm. In theory. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, this is, this is a logical point for us to arrive at. I think mm -hmm. that uh, your, your power users of social media are probably going to find this very funny uh, in certain places. I think your, um, you know, your political junkies are going to probably see this as a very political movie and they're going to insert yes, whatever right. opposing right. side they want to right. into Meryl Streep's character. Yes. Um, I, I think that there was, there, there was a lot going on um, given that my focus is on media theory. I was very depressed. <laughs> Can I say one last thing as yeah, we leave? Yeah. As Take we, us home. As we leave, as we leave. This is, although this is not related to critical media studies, but you mentioned the Meryl Streep character. I will say something about the film that I thought was totally brilliant, really brilliant, and politically astute. That I want to buy Adam McKay a drink for this. Okay. Because I love the fact that the Meryl Streep character this might be the most inspired representation in the film. And that's saying something because the Jonah Hill character is really inspired as well. And Jonah Hill takes that to a whole other level. But um, I love the fact that McKay didn't take the easy way out and have Meryl Streep, the mayor, the, I'm forgetting the name of the president, unfortunately, but you know, the Meryl played, the president played by Meryl Streep. Yeah, President Orlean. President. Orlean. Uh, I'm really impressed that McKay did not take the easy way out and say, it's, it's Trump, it's Clinton. Instead, there was a kind of weird merger mm -hmm. of Trump that, and Clinton that, that lets was you see what you, yeah, you can see what you, you want to see. It's there. a Rorschach. He created a Rorschach politically, which I thought was a really, really smart move and a really smart way of handling it. Yeah. This movie, this movie, I think, would have been unbearable if you had a Trump-like character as president. I don't think I could have got through it. No. But no, you couldn't have. You couldn't have. And it would, it would have been, been too it would, obvious. It, too it would have been equal, but I think it would have been equally problematic if it was, you know, uh, a pure Hillary Clinton president. I agree. Agreed. Um, agreed. Yeah, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna go watch like the Scooby Doo movie and see if I can just <laughs> just wipe this away. This was hard. All man. right, Michael. Well, I'm sorry that this uh, that our our plan induced uh, a little bit of nervous trauma on that, but that's a good point to. And uh, it was a great conversation with you today. I'm glad we had a chance to talk a little bit. Uh, yeah. About don't look up. No, don't, don't. And don't, don't look down either. Though, Greg. Keep <laughs> straight ahead. Keep your head straight ahead. Straight All right. Ahead. Well, well, listen, have, have a good one. And you we too. will, uh, we'll pick this up next time. Thank you, Barry. Thank you. Hey there. One more thing real quick. If you have questions or comments about what we've talked about, go ahead and drop us an email from our website at www criticalmediastudiespodcast.com or you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at Critical Media Studies Pod. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. To find out more about the show, check out our webpage at criticalmediastudiespodcast.com.